The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Episode 175 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks with a 30-day free unrestricted trial, no credit card needed. Visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. We don't take action because we believe. We believe because we take action. And that simple backwards sentence is at the core of doing work that really matters. Do first, believe second. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where we talk about things like leadership, personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. This weekend marks the fourth anniversary of the Read to Lead podcast. So what I've done is select my four favorite episodes, one from each of the four years of the podcast, my personal favorite from each year. Trust me when I say that I had no idea how tough this was going to be. There are so many great conversations that I wanted to include, but I forced myself to narrow it down. I'll be presenting to you today the highlights from each of those conversations. If you'd like to dig into each of them in more depth, I'll be sharing each episode's original link at the end of today's episode. Before we jump in, let me say a word first about our sponsor for the Read to Lead podcast. That, as you may know, is cloud accounting software FreshBooks, my personal cloud accounting software of choice. And I am a big believer that it should also be yours. If you work on a side hustle, maybe you are a freelancer. If you own your own business, you've got to be using FreshBooks. I've been using it for over eight years and it has never failed me. I have everything I need in one solution, and I'd love for you to consider checking it out. Many Read to Lead listeners also use FreshBooks, and when you try FreshBooks free for a month, no obligation, no need to even enter credit card information or anything like that, you're helping the Read to Lead podcast and offsetting some of the expenses we experience creating the show each and every outing. So here's what you do if you want to help out the show. You go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead, and then you enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section, and you'll immediately get access to all of FreshBooks features for 30 days with absolutely no obligation. Again, that URL one more time is freshbooks.com slash read to to lead. I hope you'll check them out today and discover what I discovered way back in 2009. It's the absolute best cloud accounting software option available today. 
As we revisit these conversations, my four favorite episodes, one from each of the last four years, we're going to do so in reverse chronological order. So up first is an episode that was first published just a couple of months ago, back on May 3rd, 2017. Margie Worrell, by this time, had appeared once on the show already. In fact, she's the only one of the four we're featuring today who can say that. Her most recent appearance included a conversation about her book, Make Your Mark, a guidebook for the brave-hearted. Now, in the book, Margie draws on both her personal experience and her professional background in Fortune 500 business, psychology, and coaching to equip people like you and me with the mindset, strategies, and skills we need to rethink risk, find opportunity in adversity, and overcome the inner roadblocks to enjoy greater success in work and in life. In the book, uh, Margie lays out a seven-step framework for living a, a bigger, more meaningful life. And she says that we have ever more uh, the means to live, but ever less uh, the meaning to live for. Uh, can, can you unpack that for us a bit, Margie? Yeah, sure. Well, look, you know, today we, we know there is epidemic levels of depression and reliance on um, anti-anxiety drugs. And mm-hmm. there's incredible levels of suicide and self-harm and so many of these things. There's like an epidemic. And I think that it's not it's not related to what we have in our life. It's related to how we feel about what we have in our life. And there's often a lack of meaning. And so, you know, I guess the drive behind writing my book, Make Your Mark, is because I have a passionate belief that every human being is born for a purpose and that we're all here to make an impact, to make a mark that no one else can. But but it's it's really about finding what it is that brings us a sense of meaning and connecting to that and being fully engaged in doing work that is meaningful for us. And so, and it's by connecting with that that we're able to be braver and we're able to be more resilient. And so, I do think it's not a lack of affluence that holds us back or a lack of opportunity generally. It is really just a lack of being connected to a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. I want to ask you, why do you think it's so important that that we dare to create a vision for our life that (laughs) that exceeds our current capacity to even achieve that, that vision? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I might backtrack a little. Um, I, you know, I have I have four children, four teenagers, and the reason I have four teenagers, um, well, four children is I came from a big family. I'm one of seven, and I know for me, um, I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Australia, and my vision growing up, one of seven kids, my dad milked cows for nearly fifty years, it really didn't expand much beyond the back paddock. You know, <laughs> no one in my family had ever gone to college. It wasn't a very big world, mm-hmm. but I did know from having been to the big city of Melbourne a few times that there was a world out there that was bigger than the world that I could see. And so, all I knew was at at 17, 18 was that I wanted to go and explore this bigger world. And to me, it was going to the city four hours drive away. Um, And then when I got to the city, I knew that there was this bigger world again beyond that. And it was like, ah. And so, as I know for me, as I've gone through life, um, knowing that 
I don't even, sometimes it's not even knowing exactly where it is we're going, but we know that there's having a sense that there's more to life than the life we're living and moving toward that. And any area of our life where we don't have a vision, we don't have a sense of direction, um, because it's not necessarily about a clear destination as much as a a clear direction. This is where I want to go. This is what's pulling me in this direction. We can be powerless like a ship adrift at sea that doesn't have any clear end goal of where it's going. It's kind of at the whim of the, the currents and the winds and the tides and it can end up washed against some distant shore going up oh, you know this isn't where I want it to be and so I think we have to connect with something that inspires us even though it expands our current ability to achieve it and uh, you know I know when I just my husband and I decided to have our fourth child I truly was like I don't know how do I start it I was starting a second career doing the work I am now how do I do that I had no idea how I was going to manage mother for kids and having a whole new career um, in, in empowering people and coaching and speaking and writing. Um, but it was sort of just trust, just trust that I'll figure it out. And likewise, you know, I, I meet people who are passionately engaged in doing something. They don't, they haven't figured it out. They don't know exactly how they're going to get there. But by just by being excited about where they're going, they do figure it out. And I think we do ourselves such a disservice when we set our sights only on what we absolutely know we can achieve, uh, even though it may not be something that really lights a fire in us. And so, to anyone listening now, I just, I, you know, and, I, and I, I get people to do this exercise in Make Your Mark. I, you know, sit with the big question. If you could live the biggest life that you can imagine, what would it look like? What would you be doing? Who would you be for the people around you? What would you have more of? What would you be doing less of? How would you feel every day? What value would you be adding? And when we connect with that bigger vision, um, with as much clarity as we can, but it's okay if you haven't figured it all out, it really does ignite a spark in us that allows us to Mm -hmm. tap into resources and to even attract opportunities because, you know, in our brains, once we connect with it, suddenly that we, with that reticular activating system, we start seeing <laughs> opportunities that we might have missed otherwise. So, so I do really encourage people to, to connect with a big vision, even if it scares you, even if it leaves you going, I don't know if I can do it. Just, just be brave. And, and my experience is, is that we never dare to do things that we don't have it within us. Mm. The resources and capability to achieve. And this dovetails uh, nicely into this concept of, of upgrading our, our, our mental maps that you talk about. Uh, some of us have limited mental maps that, that, that often don't really reflect reality, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about how many times people take a, a, a dud turn using their GPS in their car, right? Or, <laughs> you know, in the old days with, with a paper map, you know, and you get there and you're like, well, this isn't how it is. Well, I mean, for all of us, we all have our own set of mental maps. It's it's the assumptions, the beliefs, the stories, the rules, the, even the biases that we have from how to get from point A to point B, how to be successful in a job, how to have a marriage how that works, how to raise kids, um, how, to, how to make money, save money, all of those things. And some of those things get us what we want. And sometimes our mental maps don't. They can leave it as a dead end, continually coming up dead ends. You know, they can, we can go down roads that are very rocky and bumpy and take lots of detours versus there's an easier path to get there. And so, so yeah, that's where I, I, I do have a whole step in the book that's about upgrading our mental maps. Because let's face it, you know, your best thinking got you here. Where you are today is based on all the choices that you've made. And while there are circumstances, 
circumstances that are outside of our control. It's really the choices we make and how we respond to things that determine where we ultimately end up. And so taking a step back and challenging the assumptions we have, challenging the labels that we put on ourselves and others, challenging the rules and the shoulds, I call them shoulds, that the things we think we should be should be doing, um, that really actually confining uh, where we're going and what we're doing and what we're achieving. And I think our maps are never complete. You know, our maps, we all constantly need to be looking in and expanding our, our maps of the world. And that's why often we can see people who are stuck living lives that we're like, oh, there's so much more you could do now to get yourself out of this spot. You don't have to stay in this job or this relationship or within this business situation. But they think they do. And we can see, oh, but you don't. But they think they do because their map is small or their map is incomplete. But it's harder to often look at our own map and go, well, what is it about my own map that's actually I don't even realize is keeping me confined in a place and there's so much more I could be doing. There's other paths I could be taking. And that's where, you know, I take people through an exercise in the book of really upgrading. It's like your internal GPS system so that wherever it is you want to go, you'll be able to get there, you know, faster with less stress, with more joy along the way to hear my conversation with margie in its entirety visit read to lead podcast.com slash 168 well that interview was my favorite from the last 12 months now we go back to early 2016 for episode 119 my interview with ray edwards published on march 1st of that year ray is one of the world's highest paid advertising copywriters and marketing and business coaches and he's had a hand in helping sell an estimated 100 million dollars in products and services he's written several books and his latest when we sat down to talk was a book called how to write copy that sells the step-by-step -step system for more sales to more customers more often. The reality is not all copywriters are, are created equal. And what I appreciate about Ray and his work and the book is he goes out of his way to insist that uh, when practicing this, these techniques, that you're being truthful and honest. And I would love for you to talk, Ray, about the difference between uh, manipulation and persuasion. Sure. Uh, and I love to talk about that because I think it's misunderstood. Yeah. And once people do understand it, I believe most people want to walk in the light, which <laughs> is persuasion. And persuasion is convincing someone to do something that is in their best interest. And manipulation is convincing someone to do something that is in your best interest <laughs> while disregarding their best interest. And so a huge part of it, this is where people get confused, a huge part of the difference between persuasion and manipulation is the internal motivation of the person mm. attempting to persuade or manipulate. And it can look the same from the outside in many ways. But one way to know if you're being persuaded or manipulated is the difference between internal pressure and external pressure. And we all understand this. If you're talking to me, Jeff, about a book that you love and you're just being effusive about it and saying how wonderful it is, and how I really should read this book, mm. I begin to feel an internal pressure that says, mm, I want to read that book. Mm. It's not that you're twisting my arm or trying to force me into reading the book or use guilt or embarrassment or shame to get me to read the book. You just have helped fan the flames of desire for the outcome that I believe reading the book will get me. So that's internal pressure. External pressure would be if you cornered me in front of a bunch of friends and said, this is a really fantastic book. All smart people have read this book. Have you read it, Ray? 
would you like to? Mm. Well, now that feels like external pressure to me. And probably a better example would be if you're at a car lot and you're looking at cars and you get approached by the salesperson who puts their arm around you and suddenly they're your best friend in the world and they're inviting you to sit down in the car and you tell them that you're just looking and they say, well, what are you looking for? And you say, well, I'm looking for a red Camaro. And they said, well, if we had a red Camaro, would you buy it today? And that's instantly you feel the external nature of that pressure and it feels bad. So probably the, the most succinct way to say this is that persuasion is something you do for someone. Manipulation is something you do to someone. Uh, I actually sold cars back in the day for about a year and a half. And one of the reasons I didn't do it for very long and, and didn't do it very well is because I was not comfortable with uh, what were oftentimes the, the tactics I was being taught uh, to use to be successful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, when I entered the uh, Internet marketing space a few years ago, I began hearing this phrase uh, sales letter thrown a- around a lot. This this holdover, I think, from 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 last century. Help us understand what this thing is, Ray, what it's designed to do and give us some, some insight into to what makes for uh, an effective sales letter when we're when we're marketing. Well, you're right. It's a holdover from the previous century. It came from the world of direct mail selling when the pioneers of that industry started sending letters in the mail that were designed to sell us things. And many of us will remember the Columbia House Record Club, (laughs) where you could send them a penny and they would send you 11 albums and then they would send you one every month and it was almost impossible to cancel. (laughs) I did that, yeah. So that was called a sales letter for obvious reasons. And so when the World Wide Web came along, one of the early pioneers was a gentleman named Marlon Sanders. And he was the first person I saw do this. He actually made a web page that was essentially a sales letter from the direct mail world, put online as one long scrolling web page. And as far as I know, he was the first person to do this. Maybe he wasn't, but as far as I know, he was. And it was incredibly effective, especially for the first couple of years, because nobody had ever seen this on the internet. Mm. And it was, the reasons it was effective were, first of all, it was different. Secondly, there was no distraction. There were no menus, no graphics, no other things to click on. There was just the one centralized message that led you to an inevitable conclusion, which was either buy this or don't. (laughs) And so it was very few choices to make, just one or the other. And it works really, really well. Now, that, like anything else that works well, became overused and overdone and got filled with people who started using the techniques of manipulation to try and supercharge their sales letters. And it quickly developed the stigma of being a really hypey, sleazy kind of way to sell things online. In fact, people, when they just saw something that had the appearance of one of those sales letters and they became known for having lots of big red headlines and marked up with fake marker and highlighter, and which is ridiculous because nobody can highlight the internet. <laughs> um, but it worked anyway. It, it, felt, it gave those letters a human touch. So that's how it all got started. And people began to refer to the page on your website that sells your product or service as your sales letter or your sales copy. And so now some people still use that approach and the only people upon whom that works are people who are in that industry who've been taught almost like a catechism that this is the way you must sell things online if you know what you're doing. And so they will only buy from other people who use those kind of scammy looking sales letters. So it's sort of a small insulated bubble in the world of marketing on the internet. But for everybody else, uh, we've evolved into a much more... um, 
user-friendly, um, client-focused way of communicating. Mm. And the good parts of sales letters, the parts that are helpful to us, still work as well as ever. And the reason that they're so long, there's so much copy, is very simple. If you are considering a purchase of a training program or uh, a nutritional supplement or a book or anything else, and it's a significant decision for you, and for some people that might mean a decision for a $30 book, for other people it might mean it's not significant until it's something that's $1,000 or more, but whatever's significant for you, the more information you have, the easier it is for you to make a decision. And so, Sales copy is often longer than we might be comfortable with because we have to answer every question that people might come up with, and we have no idea which ones they may ask and which ones they may not. So we have to answer them all in the copy, and that's why they tend to be longer. But the good news is they don't have to be 50 pages long. I'm actually in the process of, of writing uh, what I would consider to be my first official sales letter and have gotten stuck a number of times <laughs> in the process. And so uh, being able to read uh, your book and particularly that section has, has been uh, very, very helpful. And, and, and one of the things I like about it is it's, it's a reference guide. I mean, this will be a book you refer to again and again and again as you dive into these things. And I, I don't believe that I'll ever write another blog post title or an email subject line, for example, without first referring back to another one of the chapters in the book, Chapter 3. Uh, Ray, what are the most important things we should keep in mind when developing our email subject lines or, or our blog posts? Well, that's a great question because the headline is the most important piece of copy you will write. It's all important, but if you don't get the headline right, nobody's going to read the rest of it. So it doesn't matter how good the rest of it is. And uh, John Caples, who is one of the great pioneers of the direct response marketing industry, said once, if you can come up with a good headline and lead, that's the beginning of your sales copy, you are almost sure to have a good ad, but even the greatest copywriter can't save an ad with a poor headline. And so just substitute in blog post or sales copy page or whatever you're writing mm. um, for ad and you get how important it is. And there, I believe there are five essential qualities of a compelling headline. And, and there's probably more, but these are the five that I believe are most important. And number one is it grabs attention. So that's the number one job is to just get the reader's attention mm. and it has to either make a claim or a promise or evoke an emotional response or stir up curiosity. And ideally it would do all three. So an example of this would be, uh, this is this, this is just a riff on a classic headline that was originally written by the way, by John Caples. Mm. And this is, this headline is which of these five mistakes do you make on your blog? Well, that grabs attention because it makes me think, am I making this mistake on my blog? <laughs> and what are these mistakes? And am I making all five of them or just one of them? Or um, I have to know. And so that clearly does the job. Um, the second essential quality of a compelling headline is that it screens and qualifies your readers. So this is where it becomes important to pick words and language that your tribe that you're trying to reach automatically identifies and realizes that you are one of them. So, um, if you're writing to tech-oriented kind of people who are also entrepreneurs, then a headline like this, the top 10 iPad apps for entrepreneurs, that may not sound super compelling to somebody outside this group of readers, but they're entrepreneurs, they're tech-oriented, apps are a big part of their life, as anybody who has an iPad knows, and so that's a great headline that helps qualify and screen your readers. The third uh, essential quality of a compelling headline is that it draws readers into the body copy. It makes them want to read more. The fourth quality is that it communicates the big idea when at all possible. So there should be just one big idea to your sales copy. 
it should let people know what the one true benefit of your post is. If it's a blog post or of your podcast, if it's that, or if you're selling, then what's the one true benefit outcome result of your product. And then the fifth quality of a compelling headline is that it establishes credibility. And you can't always use all five of these in a single headline, but you should strive to get at least three of them if at all possible. And so if you have an authority card that you can play, I would play it. So it might be something like PhD psychologist reveals the secret of self-discipline. Well, that's immediate credibility because a PhD psychologist must know more than I know about self-discipline. Another example would be Harvard study shows three common traits of successful people. Harvard immediately carries a, a lot of credibility in people's minds. So they're, apt to give more attention to something that starts with that particular headline than if you left out the name Harvard. So those are just five qualities that I think make headlines more compelling. To hear all of my conversation with Ray, simply visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash 119. In this next interview, we travel back to 2015. In fact, it was the first episode to be published that year on January the 6th. This is episode 66, or a portion of it, and my chat with one of my heroes, the author Seth Godin. This conversation centered around a book Seth had just released called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. Well, if you pre-order the book as I did, uh, you, you know this, but Seth did a live call recently for those that pre-ordered the book. And, and one question that, that came out of that discussion was very intriguing uh, to me. And the question was, how do I resolve the idea that I often know I can, but I don't always believe I can? And is this something I should even bother trying to resolve? Yeah, I loved that question. I think that was the best question of the day. <laughs> so let, let's try to parse it a little bit. The rational part of our brain knows uh, that we can do certain things. It knows that we know how to type and that technically we could post a blog. Uh, but the irrational part of our brain, the fear-based part of our brain, says, I don't believe I can do it well. Mm. I don't believe it's my turn. I don't believe I have a right. And so what we often do is have an internal debate. We litigate with ourselves, with the rational part of our brain trying to get the believing part of our brain to come along, to prove to the other part of our brain. And I'm being very literal here. There are two parts of our brain. I can show you on an MRI that there are two parts here arguing with each other. And I think that's a mistake because we don't take action because we believe. We believe because we take action. And that simple backwards sentence is at the core of doing work that really matters. That you see this when someone goes and does something radical and then two or three people tentatively copy them and then 30 people copy them and then suddenly everyone's doing it. Mm. Well, the reason that it took a few cycles is because seeing really is believing and even more than seeing, doing is believing. So what we have to do if we want to make a difference, do first, believe second. And we can train ourselves to do that. And another thing that came out of that discussion that, that I appreciated was you said you can either present a story to people who want to hear it, or you can change people into people who want to hear it. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? So the people who pre-ordered my book, and thank you, Jeff, for being among them, got 50,000 copies, well, 47,000 copies so far of the mm -hmm. book. 
those people didn't get a hard sell. There were no retail establishments. There were no fast discounts, exploding offers, and relentless banner ads. <laughs> I just whispered to the people who had been trusting me for 10 years, um, here it is. So I didn't have to change the minds of those people to get them to get the book. Mm. Now, those people all have a book in their hand that they can share. So they can go to someone with way more force and leverage than I can, and they can say, here, this changed me. Maybe it will change you. And that's a different strategy than the marketer, the publisher, going to market and saying, everyone, everyone, you need this. Because that doesn't usually work. As a coach, a podcast coach specifically, I, I sometimes hear from clients or run into folks who are up against a wall and they'll say something like, you know, the, the world just doesn't get what I do. And they're on the verge of, of giving up thinking that because of that, it makes what they're doing uh, not important or, or less important. How would you respond to them? Well, the first thing I would do is point out that they're really smart to hire you as a podcast coach. Um, but this, the second thing is that uh, reassurance is overrated. There is no amount of reassurance that is sufficient to get you to believe. Mm. That external reassurance is something that we seek all the time. Uh, Amazon has ruined the lives of countless authors by publishing for all to see reviews from unnamed anonymous critics. Mm. And I have never once met an author who said, I read all my one star reviews and now I'm a much better writer. <laughs> so three years ago, I stopped reading my Amazon reviews mm. and it was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. Because if someone goes to the trouble of giving you a one star review, the book wasn't for them. Mm. It's not that the book was bad. It just wasn't for them. And dismissing that, not hating those people, not resenting those people, but just saying it's not for you and permitting yourself to do great work for the people who it is for mm. is freeing and frightening. And it's frightening because as soon as you realize you don't have to please everyone, the last excuse you have for doing your best work goes away. Not only one of the best conversations of the last four years, maybe the best read to lead interview of them all, Seth Godin. To hear that conversation in its entirety, you can visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash 066. For our fourth and final conversation, we go back to year one. The Read to Lead podcast was still in its infancy on March 6th, 2014. That's when episode 43 was released, a conversation with author Simon Sinek. Simon is easily best known for his book, Start With Why, a book I happen to be rereading as a part of the Read to Lead University book club, which I invite you to be a part of. A little side note here, readtoleaduniversity.com to find out more about that. But when Simon was on the show, we came together to talk about his then most recent book, Leaders Eat Last, why some teams pull together and others don't. Fascinated by the leaders and companies that make the greatest impact in their organizations and in the world, those with the capacity to inspire, Simon has discovered some remarkable patterns about how they think, act, and communicate, and the environments in which people operate at their natural best. He's devoted his life to sharing his thinking in order to help other leaders and organizations inspire action. In preparing for book number two and, and research and such, what did your time, Simon, studying our military specifically teach you about leadership? So 
I spend a lot of time with them and I write about them quite considerably in Leaders Eat Last, um, not because um, they have a different form of leadership. It's just that the lessons of leadership, the, 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 the foundational lessons of leadership are more exaggerated because they deal in matters of life and death. So where things like trust and cooperation for us may be luxuries or nice ideas or things to talk about in an interview, um, for them they're an absolute necessity because absent trust and cooperation, people will die. Um, and so if you have something that is required, if trust and cooperation are a necessity, how, how do you go about creating, um, creating them in an organization? Um, and so I learned a lot of lessons about where trust and cooperation come from from the military, and they are absolutely transferable to any group or organization. Like I said, the lessons are just exaggerated um, in, in their line of business. Um, and, and basically it all boils down to um, how we feel um, uh, amongst each other and, and, and what we feel the le- responsibility of leadership is. True leaders are responsible for the people in their charge. They take responsibility for their lives. Um, too many of our leaders in our modern organizations feel that their job is, is the responsibility, you know, to, to take responsibility for the numbers or the performance of the organization. Mm. And, and this is the furthest thing from the truth. The reality is a leader's job is to look after the people, and the people's job is then to look after the numbers in the organization. Back in uh, episode 30, we're at episode 43 now, uh, we chatted with uh, Liz Weissman, the book Multipliers. And, and one of the takeaways for me from that conversation with Liz, Simon, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I know you delve into this as well, is this approach to leadership that reasons that uh, yeah, I'm supposed to have all the answers as a leader, or I can't have someone who reports to me who's, who's smarter than I am. What, what problem does that mentality create for, for organizations in your view? Well, the, the, it's a complete fallacy that, that the person at the top has to have all the answers. Um, what would be the point of having people then? Are they just, are they just robots, automatons, you know, there to execute on all the brilliant ideas and correct answers that the leader has? No, of course not. Of course not. The more, the more people involved uh, uh, who offer an, a, a different perspective, then the more perspectives you will have, the more solutions that become available. Um, great leaders um, know that they don't know everything. And great leaders are very open to the ideas of others. What their responsibility is is to set the course, in other words, articulate a clear vision that we're working towards, which is different than a big goal, and to give the people the resources and protect, protect the people. But yes, this idea that my credibility as a leader is tied to my intelligence or my, or my capacity or capability are complete, complete nonsense. I used to believe uh, the lie, uh, is the word you use, the lie of the safety that, that a job uh, provided. You know, how safe is it, though, when one person's decision can mean you don't have it anymore? <laughs> you know, right, the, exactly right. In fact, that happened to me a little less uh, than a year ago, a job I'd held for 14 mm-hmm. years. You say that this myth of job stability may be, though, the least of our worries. Wh- which is ultimately worse, assignment, not having a job at all or, or working every day at a job that we hate? So the statistics and the studies are clear on this, um, which is um, that people who have no job tend to uh, uh, have, or have the same levels of stress or lower levels of stress than people who work in a job they don't like. So think about that. Going to a job you hate or going to a job you don't love is actually more stressful than not having a job at all. And, you know, and, and this is sort of a remarkable thing. And what it starts to inform us is that as human beings, we're social animals. Our, our happiness, our success, our survival, our health depend uh, quite a great deal on how we feel amongst the people with whom we live and, uh, and how we feel amongst the people with whom we work. This is what work-life imbalance is. It has nothing to do with how much yoga we do. 
work-life imbalance is that we feel safe at home, but we don't feel safe at work. In other words, we don't trust that our leaders have our interest in mind. Mm. And when there's this underlying stress, tension, fear, whatever you want to call it, when there's this underlying belief that our leaders would sooner sacrifice us to save the numbers and wouldn't sacrifice the numbers to save us, what that does is it makes us, uh, the, the, there's a biological and anthropological reaction to that kind of feeling, which is we become paranoid, we become uh, cynical, we become mistru- mistrustful, and we become self-interested. Of course, because if we don't trust that someone else will look after us, we have to look after ourselves. Any organization, anybody that feels that, uh, compelled to write a CYA email um, means that they work in an organization where they, they, they don't trust their leaders. <laughs> because why would you invest time and energy to write a CYA email if you, if you, if you didn't fear anybody? Of course you wouldn't, right? Mm. So these, these things are symptoms. And, and think about it from a leadership perspective. Your people are spending time to write emails to cover their own behinds <laughs> as opposed to working hard to solve the problems to advance the organization. Well, guess what? That's a leadership problem. That's not the problem with your people. That's the problem with you. Ouch. <laughs> to hear more of my conversation with Simon Sinek, all the way back at episode 43, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash zero four three. And there you have it. What I believe to be my favorite and best episodes, one each from the last four years. Margie Worrell, Ray Edwards, Seth Godin, and Simon Sinek. To find more on each of these episodes all in one place, you can visit the show notes page created for this episode. That, of course, is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 175 for episode 175. Well, I hope you agree that this was a great way to start off the second half of 2017 and what is the beginning of year five of the Read to Lead podcast. For comments or questions, feel free to shoot me an email, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. And as I mentioned during the episode, for more on Read to Lead University, it's readtoleaduniversity.com. If your name is Brooke Craven, don't veer off the road as I say your name, but rather smile as I thank you for your review and your rating of the Read to Lead podcast. I appreciate all five stars. If you'd like to leave us a rating and review in iTunes, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. You can also uh, leave one on Stitcher if that's your platform of choice, readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Finally, remember our sponsor, FreshBooks, making this episode possible, freshbooks.com slash readtolead. And to take advantage of that free 30-day trial, enter Read to Lead in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.